and welcome to the Digiday podcast. I'm Tim Peterson, Senior Media Editor at Digiday. Today I'm talking with Melissa Bell, the publisher of Vox Media and one of the co-founders of Vox. Vox, which you may know as Vox.com, is the general news property that Vox Media launched in April 2014 after hiring Melissa and Ezra Klein away from the Washington Post, where Melissa was the director of platforms, as well as their Vox co-founder, Matt Iglesias, who came from Slate. Both Klein and Iglesias recently announced their departures from Vox, as did Vox editor-in-chief Lauren Williams, who was an early Vox employee before taking the top spot in 2017. We will be getting into all that and what seems to be setting up for a new era at Vox. But first, a little more table setting. Over the past nearly seven years, both Vox and Melissa have taken on bigger roles within Vox Media. Vox has gone from a 20-person team at launch to a newsroom of around 120 people, and its explainer articles became the basis for what is now a whole brand of Netflix shows and a portfolio of podcasts. Meanwhile, Melissa was promoted in 2015 to become Vox Media's VP of Growth and Analytics, and about a year later was appointed to be the company's publisher. Okay, let's get into it. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks for taking the time to talk. Happy to be here. Always enjoy the Digiday podcast. So last month, Vox co-founders Matt Iglesias and Ezra Klein, as well as Vox editor-in-chief Lauren Williams, announced they are leaving Vox. So what's going on at Vox? <laughs> you know, it's a it's a story that's a little bit about Vox, but also just I think this is a major year of change. You spoke a little bit about uh, the founding of Vox, we started almost seven years ago. We'll have our seventh anniversary in March uh, this this next year. And uh, it's been an incredible period of growth for us. I think particularly over the last three years, uh, we really expanded into those multimedia uh, platforms that you were talking about, television and podcasts. Obviously, our newsroom grew as well. And it's been fantastic to watch this growth. Um, but I think this year, with everything in change and, 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 uh, everyone kind of considering their next steps. I think individually Ezra, Matt and Lauren all in conversations with me realized that they were ready for a different step in their careers. And similarly, I think Vox is ready for a different step in, uh, its direction in 2021. And it aligned really to sort of say, okay, let's make this, let's make some big significant changes all at once and let's move forward into a, into a new era of Vox. Um, obviously they have all been huge instrumental parts of Vox and have really left their imprint on it. Um, and I'm really grateful for all they've done, but I'm also excited for what's to come next. Yeah. And there's some precedent for this because in, I think it was 2017 was when Ezra became editor-at-large, and that was when Lauren was promoted mm-hmm. to be editor-in-chief. And th- that seemed to coincide with also something of a new era for Vox. Like, Today Explained hadn't launched yet. Um, the Netflix you know, show Explained was yeah. launching, I think, a year later. So like with this now, you know, kind of that precedent being set, what are you expecting for the next era of Vox? What's going to be different about Vox in 2021? Yeah, you know, I don't want to ever speak for Ezra, but I but I do think it's a really interesting story a bit um, in his in his decisions. Uh, what he's always done, and I think that this is this was evident in 2017, and it's evident now, is that um, he and Matt and I came up with a strong idea about what Vox could try to solve for audiences. We really knew that there was a there was something that we needed to help with journalism overall. But what we found is that. Having others come in and take that sort of seed of an idea and build something 
invariably ends up with amazing, incredible work. And I think that when Ezra stepped back in 2017, he did so purposefully to let someone like Lauren Williams take the helm and lead Vox into sort of this next generation. And you see the, you see the impact that she had um, uh, over the last few years. And I think what we're looking for is to find, you know, uh, some new folks who are ready to be uh, those new leaders and taking Vox into different directions. We also, I think, have created space internally for a lot of the really talented people we have uh, to step up and um, and take Vox into different directions. Today Explained, you mentioned, is, a, is our daily podcast, and I think it's a great example. We hired Sean Rameshwaram, our host, um, to create something that really, I think, gets at what we want Vox to be at its very best, something that uh, drills deep into stories of the day, um, but does so in a way that is that takes the topics very seriously, but never takes itself too seriously, um, that brings both joy and understanding to its audience. Um, and that's not something that I could have ever come up with. That's not something that Ezra could have ever come up with. That's really something that Sean developed um, with his fantastic team. And and I just, you know, I've always found that if you give creators a space to do great work, their great work will be accomplished. And so we're looking forward to that in, in the next year. Got it. Okay. And is like, I kind of mentioned with after Lauren, that was when Vox really grew in the audio space and really grew in the TV and streaming space. Are you mm-hmm. looking at newer, uh, I guess, channels for Vox at the moment? Yeah. You know, for both of those businesses, we're seeing, we're expecting a lot of growth next year. Our podcast, um, ha- our listeners have grown by 45% this year. Obviously there's a lot more folks who are learning about podcasts and also, um, uh, a lot of people who have been dedicated podcast listeners listening to more. Um, so we're expecting to see a lot of podcast growth next year. We have a strong portfolio, but we are planning to, you'll start seeing launches in the new year. Um, our TV shows, similarly, we we just announced that we're doing a, a new deal with HBO. We're still uh, heavily um, partnered closely with uh, Netflix. So you'll see a lot of growth there. Um, we're going to be starting to look into the OTT streaming platforms for Vox. There's just an incredible uh, library of um, video content that Vox has created over the years. Um, and so we're excited to start to bring that to audiences across OTT platforms as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I you'll see a lot more from Vox um, in the year ahead. And, you know, this has been a this has been a tough year for everyone, um, but I am so proud to see um, Vox have navigate through it well and and set itself up for the growth to come. Got it. On the OTT side, um, like the streaming channel. So Eater, I think it's Eater, already mm-hmm. has like a 24-7 streaming channel up and running. And that's kind of been the kind of the model it seems like Vox is kind of looking to as it figures out you know the rest of its OTT or connected Mm -hmm. TV strategy looking at like Vox specifically in that space having a 24-7 channel we kind of already have channels like that from CBS ABC News Live um, NBC News has one as well how are you thinking of differentiating with Vox and also like you mentioned Vox has a big YouTube library and with the explainer videos, it's nice because that's evergreen content. So it's mm-hmm. not just a video from 2015 will still have value as opposed to be like, oh, well, I don't need to go back and watch a video that's five years old or at that point, six years old. 
but are you thinking about original programming or like new programming specifically for the 24 seven channel? Yes, definitely. And, uh, and I think that you, you actually helped sort of articulate what I think the difference is. I think that a lot of, a lot of news channels, um, particularly television news channels do focus on much more of the new part of the news. And I think what Vox has always tried to do is use the new as a hook to reveal a bigger story. And, uh, and, you know, you'll see that leads to a lot of evergreen storytelling on our video platforms and and elsewhere. Um, But I think in the video space in particular, uh, given how, you know, how much it, how much time it it takes to create great video, it's even all the more important to really make sure that you have a longer shelf life. One of the things that we've seen with the OTT platforms, Eater in particular, is that the watch time people spend watching Eater on uh, Roku is very, very long. People want to stay with with it for you know more than an hour um, on average, and and so we also want to create a, um, a, a library that allows people to dig in and dive deep for uh, for that period of time that they want to spend with the with the storytelling. Um, and so that also means that we're really going to be thinking about how to create stories and videos that are, that are, have longer shelf lives. Um, and I think that'll set us apart from the ABCs and the NBCs that focus, focus more on the latest, what just happened. Got it. And it seems like one nice thing with these streaming TV channels is like, you can take programming, put them on those channels, but also put them on YouTube or Facebook or other platforms. There isn't really Mm -hmm. any, at least for now, exclusivity requirements that these platforms are Mm -hmm. demanding, which seems like it would help from a economics standpoint of, okay, you know, you're going to get ad revenue if you have a channel on a Pluto TV or Roku channel or whatever the connected TV platform is. And then, you know, you'll get ad revenue on YouTube. You you all also have the video lab for contributor revenue too. does that then create new opportunities to do different types of videos, knowing that there would be more money coming in? So maybe you can invest a bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we. Th- I think there's two things that I'm proud of at Vox Media that I think we've always done really well. Um, and one is to try to make content really specific for the audience of platforms. So there is a difference. It's, it's slight from YouTube to an OTT streaming platform. But there is a different need for those two audiences. And so we have teams that are really thinking about, they use the platforms, they engage with the platforms. And so they really think, what does an audience member need from this platform that's different from that platform? Uh, and so that's one, one characteristic. The other characteristic is, though, is that we do think about using all of our content um, as inspiration for other platforms. Um, we really don't, we've been medium agnostic our entire, um, our entire life cycle. And so what you're finding is that what we're finding is that we are taking inspiration from our writing to create podcasts our podcasts to create videos, our OTT, uh, series that either just did their, their very first OTT specific series that is inspiring TV development programs. Um, and I think that that, path is really important and strong. You're going to see a lot more of it um, from us. It helps us determine what audiences really like. It helps us um, shape stories. Um, Some of the things that I'm most excited about is that we'll be launching podcasts and TV shows uh, with similar subject matter, similar storytelling. Um, 
And it allows us to reach audiences in the way that they want to be reached. Some people are audio listeners or learners, and some people are visual learners. Uh, and so those two, I think those two characteristics um, allow us to be the most efficient with our work um, as possible. So that last one, that sounds like it's not quite so straightforward as we're going to do, we're going to, you know, when people are hosting a podcast, we're just going to, you know, record it on video and we'll put that up. And then we have, you know, video from the podcast. It seems like it's going to be a bit more nuanced than just that. Yeah, there's, there's a couple different paths for sure. I mean, I think that one, one option is that we are going to actually produce simultaneously podcasts and TV shows that when we really know the idea is super strong and we can create them at the same time. Um, in other um, areas, we can test out an idea in a podcast form or a video, a, you know, a YouTube video, and that will lead to um, us developing it out for television. So we actually have both planned for next year. Um, we had a great um a series of uh, um, really in-depth, wonderful uh, technology explainers on Land of the Giants. If you haven't listened to it, we were doing seasons of um, some of our best experts from Recode examining examining the impact of uh, Amazon or the um, the story of Netflix, and uh, that that reached such a huge audience, and there was such a hunger for that kind of um, storytelling that we realized that this was something that we should be developing for television. Um, and so those are the kind of examples of, uh, of us thinking about using this, using all parts of our business as almost innovation and, um, inspiration for the other formats and mediums that we're in. Blind on Netflix was kind of like that. Like you had Estelle Caswell doing these great earworm yeah. videos and then she produced the K-pop episode of the Netflix show. Exactly. It's, she's incredible. She's one of our, one of our most talented journalists, but yeah. that's, that's exactly Estelle is a great example of um, someone who really did come up with a format and a craft in in on YouTube, and then and then was able to take her skills and her ideas to television. And it also is a great career development path for our team. You know, I think that we want to always allow for a culture of learning and development, and and being able to offer that to our our team uh, is is wonderful and um, something that I'm really proud that we we're able to do. Right. And with that, like, given that you have the evidence of, okay, we can take YouTube videos, develop those into TV shows. And now you're taking, you know, podcasts and developing those into TV shows and you can do it, you know, vice versa. Does that open up new kinds of experiments and in different types of mediums? Like, are you looking at, oh, what's a TikTok thing that we could do that could (laughs) become a TV show or a podcast or some uh, virtual reality thing? You know, it's funny. We are TikTok is a funny platform, though. It's one of the few platforms that we are not deeply in, in experimentation on, which uh, which it always makes me laugh because I'm obsessed with TikTok. <laughs> so I um, I very much want us to spend more time on it. Uh, I think that everyone's discovered it kind of in the in during the pandemic, and I and I find it incredibly entertaining. So I would actually like us to do the reverse and find inspiration for what we can be doing on TikTok with our, with our current, uh, muscle, um, across the board. But yes, that is, we are thinking about that all the time. You know, one of, one of the areas that we're experiencing, we're experimenting more with SB Nation and Polygon is Twitch, uh, mm-hmm. which, uh, I think has a ton of, um, possibilities in terms of reaching new audiences, um, and younger audiences. Um, so yeah, we're always kind of keeping our, our eyes and ears open. I'm, I'm really curious about 
texting platforms that allow for folks to text each other. It's been, we've done a few experiments with that, where which allows our audience to ask questions in a text format. Uh, Is that more like Discord than a chatbot? It's, yeah, it's, it's much more like, it, it's much more of a, it feels much more like a personal interaction that um, people can send in messages. We can figure out, you know, how, who is asking kind of like thematic, um, similar, similarly thematic questions. Um, we did this a lot around the election when there was a lot of discussion around process and, and um, obviously a lot of very strange, uh, op- opaque uh processes within, um, how elect the electoral college works. Uh, and it allowed people to ask direct questions. I think in a platform that sometimes feels a little bit safer than something like Twitter or more, a more public platform. So, um, and more intimate really. And we're seeing a lot of, um, success, I think in, with these sort of more intimate mediums like podcasts, I think is an incredibly intimate medium. It's just you and a couple people listening to you. Um, hopefully a lot of people listening to you, but, um, but that's, but I, I think people are looking for that kind of like intimate, immediate connection more so these days than others. Got it. Another experiment that, you know, Vox has done is, uh, contributions, uh, mm-hmm. you know, reader revenue. You all started this, um, in a different form on the YouTube channel with the video lab. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to say that was a year, a couple of years ago. Um, but then in April of this year, you started doing it on the website and, and it's, contributions it's not it's not technically donations it's also not really a subscription business why isn't it a subscription sure it's a great question we um one of the reasons why we were able to start it in april and and we were able to to see a lot of success with it was it was i think a great sign of the our merger with new york magazine which is a very strong subscription business um even stronger today than um when we merged with new york magazine a year ago so we were able to take a lot of their expertise and a lot of the work that they've done building out the New York Magazine subscription business and work with them on something that I think was um, was a uh, much more Vox approach to uh, thinking about reader revenue than a subscription business. And the reason why we started with the contributions program is that we've we've always had an audience that um, that for Vox that I think likes to participate in in a mission-driven journalism organization. You know, I think that a lot of people um, learned about us when we first started and understood that we were trying to do something different in journalism and wanted to actively participate in supporting that effort to to change journalism. And um, when we were asking questions of our audience, one thing that, that was really strong, that came across in a very strong way, was that our audience wants there to be some journalism outlets that are still free and accessible to others who can't pay for journalism. And so uh, they felt like contributing in part to, to allow other people access to Vox. And, um, and, and it, that message we heard that there was, that there was a desire from people to support us, but also a desire to make sure that we were still accessible to others. And, um, and I think that's always a question with subscriptions. Like, you know, we do take down the paywall when there's with like the COVID coverage for New York magazine. Um, we, you know, we think about adjusting our paywall. Um, but this was, this was a decision to just not put up a paywall in the first place. Um, and what's been great, what's one of the things that I love about Fox media is that we're able to experiment with different 
you know, similar but different business models for our networks um, that that are really aligned with what our audience wants and expects, depending on whether it's New York Magazine or Eater or Vox. And um, the contribution program, we weren't sure if it was going to be a, a, an experiment, something that we did for a period of time. Um, but what we found is that it's it surpassed all of our expectations and um, and I think has created a real, a very interesting connection to our community um, where we're getting not just uh, financial donations, but story, re- story recommendations and um, and feedback from the readers and the listeners and the viewers that um, probably does so much to inspire our staff um, hearing directly from people about why the journalism matters. Um, but I think it's gotten a lot of people through a tough year. Um, so it's something that we're going to continue in the year ahead. Right. And with the contributions, like obviously person gives Vox money and they get the kind of satisfaction of, okay, I'm helping out this company, this publication I like to read. Um, but they don't necessarily like, they don't get a tote bag. They don't get free content. Do they get anything in return for the contribution? The great journalism Vox okay. does. Got it. We've talked about, you know, th- thinking about ways that we can, um, add in some membership type benefits. Um, and we might experiment with that in the future, but I really do think that, you know, our audience values what we do and want to, and wants to support it and, and find satisfaction in that. Um, and, uh, and I think that this is important. You know, I think it's, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big believer that no, no single business model is a silver bullet for what we need to do with journalism. But I do think that, as we think about subscriptions and consumer revenue and reader revenue, um, it's important for us to just remember that that our that our audiences care about what we do, and that there's a there's a very big desire from um, audiences to support our work, whether that's financially or um, in other ways. Got it. On the I think when you were on the Digital podcast before, and you were talking about Video Lab, it, it sounded like there was something of like an advisory group of mm-hmm. people who our members of the video lab who are contributors for that, they kind of get a closer connection to Vox on the video side. Does that also, do you also have something like that in place with the new contribution program? Not yet, but we do allow for our contributors to submit ideas and to submit suggestions and to submit reasons why they care about our, our work and our journalism. Um, the video lab, we um, have experimented with, you know, Q and A's with our video creators and um, and lessons that they can take, and also sort of an advisory board that suggests what videos we should create. Uh, but and there's and there's definitely an audience that wants to do that and and, and is excited about those offerings. But the overwhelming majority uh, really just cares about the work we're doing and wants to support the work that we're doing. So I don't think it is a necessity. It's it's great. I'm proud that we can do that with the video lab, but it's not uh, it's not necessary for the business. Got it. And the fact that like this is kind of like an altruistic thing of you know crit- contributors that are being selfless with their money, basically. Does that then kind of limit the potential for this as a revenue stream? That that you're not really incentivizing people to contribute that it's not really there's not really a transaction going on here this is the experiment that we're conducting right now uh and i think that my hypothesis is that no i don't think it will limit uh the desire to donate uh, to contribute um 
that it's going to, that we're going to see a continued commitment from our audience so long as we continue to produce great work. Um, And the reason why I have that hypothesis is that you see this elsewhere in the international media market, that there are a lot of organizations in Europe and um, in other parts of the world where there is more of this contribution model um, the Guardian, I think, being a great representative of this, where um, that where there is this sort of altruistic desire from a lot of people who want to support journalist, great journalistic work, um, and uh, and so, you know, I think that there is a, a ton of growth for subscriptions business. It's why we're betting on it with New York Magazine. I think there's also a ton of growth and opportunity with a contributions business, which is why we're betting on it for Vox. Got it. Does it have to be an either or thing? Like even you mentioned one of the reasons you don't with subscriptions, you want to keep the content free. I imagine like you can have a subscription business, the content's still free. Like a basic one is if you pay and you're a subscriber, then it's ad free. That's kind of the tried mm-hmm. and true model in the streaming video side of things. Is subscriptions on the table for Vox? I never take anything off the table, but I don't think it is in the foreseeable future. Um, And, you know, and I think, I think the ad free experience is something that, um, you know, is always under discussion with the subscription business. I'll just say that, you know, we work very hard to create a good ad experience on our, on our sites. And, um, and so, you know, even something like that, you know, we, we, we try to really make sure that it doesn't interrupt our user experience. And so we are, we're constantly thinking about the whole picture um, rather than an either or situation. Got it. Okay. <laughs> One last kind of binary contributions related question. Um, so Video Lab obviously launched before this new contribution program. Are you thinking about combining those two? No, because I, that is a, that's more of a YouTube product or a YouTube okay. um, situation, but I think it's, I think it comes from sort of the same, the same mission and area. Um, and you know, I, and I, and I think that we are, um, I think we're really excited about this, uh, experimenting in different ways, um, with the video lab and with the contributions program overall. Um, and, but it's part of a overall larger revenue mix, uh, that, you know, we see a lot of potential for growth in 2021 there and elsewhere with podcasts, with television, um, and in a lot of other places as well. Got it. Okay. So a lot of changes in 2020 for Vox for, for everyone. It's 2020. That's just the world these days. <laughs> um, how how else is Vox changes? Like on the coverage front, um, I imagine that a lot of changes there because like the news cycle has been so nuts that even though Vox doesn't cover the news from like a traditional perspective, news is obviously very mar- much a part of the coverage and there was just so many things to be writing about, mm-hmm. making videos about, podcasting about. How is like kind of the scope of Vox changed in in twenty twenty, and like what does that set up for twenty twenty one? Yeah, you know, I'm going to start with where what isn't going to change about Vox. You know, I think that fundamentally we started as a mission driven organization prioritizing the needs of our audience. And we really believe that um, the worst trick played on the public is um, to make them believe that the world is too complicated for them to understand. And we really want to make sure that we're constantly helping uh, our audience with our journalism. Uh, that's not going to change. That's, that, that is 
the goal uh, uh, always to to be a service um, to our audience. Um, but I mean, everything else has changed in 2020. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that we have in terms of actual coverage areas, I think that this is a this is a majorly important moment to um, to really focus on a few key areas of, of that change. We're moving from a new administ- to a new administration. We're moving from hopefully a world where vaccinations are readily available. We're moving to a world where we are hopefully going to continue to see um, real economic recovery. Um, we're also um, continuing to see widening economic inequality. We're the world is literally on fire um, as we are experiencing uh, the impact of climate change. Um, we're still going to have a very divided um, country. We're still going to be grappling with police brutality. Um, and so I think that what you'll see in Vox uh, in 2021 is really choosing some of the areas that are going to matter deeply to our audiences and really trying to help them move through those very big questions that face us. Um one of the things that I've been thinking about in terms of like, what, it, what do audiences need now is that I, that I really see a lot of audiences suffering from sort of exhaustion. They're exhausted by their, by the world, the news, they're overwhelmed by changes in their own lives. Um, and they're and that, that feeling of being overwhelmed, um, can come into play when they're, they're seeing, um, a constant stream of bad news. Um, and so how do we think about that as a problem that audiences are facing? So, you know, we're really focusing on, um, on trying to tackle some of those big problems that audiences have, um, by choosing areas that can really make sure that we're, that we're, um, also tackling the biggest questions out there. Got it. Um, in addition to like the coverage front, obviously every workplace has changed this year. Everyone's had to work, not everyone, a lot of people have had to work remotely that weren't working remotely before. Companies had to adjust to remote work. um, And a lot of companies seem to be planning to keep that to some capacity moving forward. How does that then like um, change, you know, Vox from a employee management and hiring perspective, especially because then it also seems like it could open up um, to ensuring that you have a diverse workforce mm-hmm. um, and a representative workforce, because then it's not limited to people who are in New York or DC, or basically big cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, since our started starting point, we've always been in remote culture, which I do think you, you mentioned this opportunity. It's been huge for um, building a much more inclusive newsroom when you are able to have somebody in, in the Midwest or Florida or Seattle. Um, and we have, we've always allowed for, you know, really ensuring that we are finding the best, um, reporters or video producers or podcast producers. Um, our, uh, one of our heads of Vox video is in New Delhi. Um, and, uh, and we want to we want to keep that feature alive. Obviously, it's played into um, how well we've been able to navigate COVID and the transition to working from home. Um, but I do think that, like along with a lot of other things, COVID has accelerated uh, um, the recognition that remote is will be a part of our future as a company and as an organization. 
we did have a lot of people centered in DC and New York. Um, and I think that we are much more aware of how to ensure that we can be productive with people working all over the world for us. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that, that that's a huge positive for us um, in terms of hiring. Um, I do think, though, that it's tough because I think that the the loneliness that people feel in, just in the lives that we're leading today um, is um, can pull people away from organizations. I think one of the benefits of having office spaces is that social community that you that you feel with your with your team members. Um, and so we've thought a lot about how can we add some of that cultural aspect, that that bonding aspect um, into remote work. Um, but, and then how do we, when we are, when we do start to think about going back to the, to some offices, how do we think about connecting our remote workforce with our office-based workforce and how do we make sure that that overlaps? So we're thinking about that, uh, you know, a lot, um, because there's pluses and minuses to both approaches. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how we figure out some of these, um, solutions in the year to come. And are you also having to think about the workforce, the people who work for Vox differently from a talent management perspective, like, you know, Matt leaving um, to you know start up his own sub stack that kind of fits into this trend of, oh, people are leaving media companies to go off and start their own thing. I mean, even, you know, Lauren, she's starting her own publication with mm-hmm. capital B. It seems like that kind of fits in the narrative too. Um, and then like, Ezra, it's kind of the other side. It fits into this narrative of he's going to the times of these, you know, big traditional media companies are raiding all of these, all the, you know, their digital media companies that were supposed to be their rivals. Are you having to manage talent differently right now? Not, not particularly. I mean, I think that we've always had, I mean, I I think one of the benefits of, of being six, one of the benefits, one of the challenges of being successful is that other organizations want to recruit from us. I think it's a sign of success. Um, and you know, Substack is, is a new model, but it is definitely in a recruiting mode. And so we, we've had this happen to us over the years. Um, and I see it as, um, I see it as a benefit that, that folks can come to Vox and work with Vox Media or Vox and, um, and, and add a really big gold star to their resume. Um, but you know, we do think a lot about a lot about talent management, whether it's whether it's to have folks develop their careers here or take a next step somewhere else. Um, and I think that the really important thing that we do, and and it's why I'm you know I I will always applaud people who who go just as much as folks who stay is that we encourage a real entrepreneurial spirit amongst our team. We want creators who are ambitious about their work and. Um, it means that we want people to do that, to find new projects here with us. And we want to give them the opportunity to find the new projects here with us. Um, and it's something that we really cultivate. Um, and we want, you know, we are, we're, we think about learning and development. We think about how people can learn from one another internally. We think about, you know, so you mentioned Estelle Coswell, for instance, how can she, who's doing incredible YouTube work, have a chance to try her hand at television production and how can she then also go back to YouTube work and and have the freedom and the um, and the opportunity to try both? Um, and that's something that uh, that I think when you put you know you put ambitious projects in front of ambitious people, that to me is the best type of talent 
management you can create. Um, and, and sometimes, um, that means that, that folks are ready to try the next new thing for themselves. And, and we're always going to be supportive of that too. Got it. And then lastly, for someone, the next new thing is going to be editor in chief of Vox. Um, and it's interesting, like, so Lauren was editor in chief, but she was also SVP and you have job listings where it seems like you're going to be splitting those roles. You're going to have an editor in chief and SVP that's separate from the editor in chief. Why split the role? Um, it's a great question. Uh, Lauren is incredible and very, very talented. And I'm really excited to watch what she does with Capital B and you all should watch too. Um, but you know, over time, her job became two different jobs. And if she had stayed, we would have had to split it into two roles. Um, and now that she's, she's leaving, we are, we're definitely splitting into two roles. Um, and the reason for that is that the, you know, our newsroom at Vox is about 80 people strong. It's a really big group of really talented journalists covering everything from policy and politics to culture to um, recode and technology. And um, I'm looking for an incredible editorial leader who is um, who's interested in career development and talent management and and pushing um, the ambitions of our newsroom even further than they are. But then we also have a really big business with Vox. We have things that we've talked about, our television work, our podcast work, our um our new consumer revenue business line. We um, work very closely. We need we need an executive to work closely with our um, advertising team that does a lot with branded content based off of Vox formats. Um, and it's important for us to to have someone who can also think about you know the the product of Vox and where that product should go in the future. Um, and and I and combining them will limit either of those roles to really take Vox into the next stage. And, you know, this year has been a, this year has been a really successful year, but it's been a, it's also been one that we have not grown at a very fast speed. Um, and I'm expecting as we see more return, um, more economic recovery in the year ahead, um, that Vox is really poised to take off for another spurt of growth, uh, growth spurt. And, um, uh, and, uh, and I'd really want us to bring in some very talented leaders to help us through that period of, um, of change. Um, so if you have any good recommendations, send them my way. Um, if any of your listeners do, uh, we'd love to talk to folks. Got it. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Melissa, <laughs> thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. really enjoyed it. And thank you for listening to the Digiday Podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like. We'll be back next week with another episode.